welcome to the Going Up Cash, your weekly feel-good podcast, where this week we talk about a brand new streaming service. We dive deeper into 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Xbox finally stepped up to the plate, and I went camping. That's right. We got, we got quite a show for you this week. Episode 101. I talk about the Xbox Showcase. There's a couple of really good-looking games in there. I went camping on the Olympic Peninsula and talk a little bit about that fun adventure. We take a look at Peacock. NBC, Comcast, Universal's streaming service. And we got three more chapters of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. A couple of housekeeping notes here at the top of the show. Number one, my goal is to have an episode for next week. Um, the actual day, like the August 4th of next week when the episode would go up, is I'm actually moving that day. Um, so the episode of the podcast should be fine. What might be uh, sparse for the next couple of days preceding um, or following the move-in day will be the daily audiobook chapters because until I get my internet set up in my new place, I can't upload the chapters. So those might be sparse uh, for that week. But when I do get my internet back, I will be sure to upload all of the chapters of the intervening days where they were chapterless, if that makes sense. Um, I'll do my best to keep you guys posted. Feel free to check out Facebook dot com forward slash going up cast or follow me on instagram at going up cast i'll do my best to keep you all updated on social media if uh, anything doesn't pan out the way i think it's going to my hope is that the transition is so smooth that there's no blip you guys just don't even notice it's just continuous daily chapters and new episodes and everything's totally fine mm, sorry it's like eight in the morning and i'm super sleepy uh, also, real quick, if you enjoy the Going Cast and wish to support the Going Cast, you can go to patreon.com slash goingupcast where you can become a $5 patron, get access to the monthly live streams, and the Pokemon Nuzlocke run, which is still chugging away. I actually need to record new episode of that today, and I'm very excited to do it to get back into some Pokemon action because it's been a minute for me. Um, and yeah, I hope you enjoy this. This is a longer one, for sure. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff to talk about, so no more uh Flattering of the words from me. Let's get into the podcast. So a couple of weeks back, Sony dropped the PlayStation 5 and announced a whole bunch of fun new games. And Microsoft finally sat up in its chair and decided to do the same thing. And I'm a little late to the party, but I finally got around to watching their showcase uh, where they announced new things like, well, they didn't announce this, but Halo Infinite, we got new information on it. We know it's an open world game. I never played Halo enough to be able to say one way or the other if I think it's a good-looking game. I think it's beautiful, you know? Um, but graphics nowadays are almost always amazing, so it's kind of like a given, you know? Like, last time I went to see, like, Frozen 2 in, in theaters, all right, I, like, the water effects looks incredible, but it's almost like it's expected at this point that the, the, the thing is visually really good to look at. So it's... It's like the, the bare minimum of what you have to achieve, in my opinion. But Halo Infinite does look really good. I don't have enough of a relationship with Halo to want to play the game. Because I never really played it as a child. Um, but if you're a big Halo fan, it looks fine to me. There's a game called As Dusk Falls. Which is uh, this weird like storyboard aesthetic art. Where instead of it being like animations of like facial movements and stuff like that. They'll, the characters will go from, like, strong dynamic pose to strong dynamic pose with, like, no in-between. Which is an interesting way of doing it. I'm not a super big fan of that art style, but more power to. Uh, there's a new 
what is it? A first-person fantasy role-playing game called Avowed, which is set in the world of Pillars of Eternity, which is also a game I've never played. Um, a lot of things where I'm like, oh, that looks kind of cool. And Avowed is one of those things. They announced a new Fable game, which is actually something I played all... I played Fables 1, 2, and 3. Um, this one is not made by Lionhead Studios, which was Peter Molyneux. This is being made by Playground Games, who made the Forza Horizon series. So, and that's it. That's all they've ever done. They've made Forza 1, 2, 3, and 4, and now they're making Fable. So, that one's kind of a crapshoot. It could be really good. It visually looks great, but it's a cinematic trailer, and that does not necessarily mean the game is going to look that good, you know? So, could be really good. I don't know. The thing with um with these Xbox games is it's like, I am going to get the PlayStation 5. I'm not going to get an Xbox Series X console because all of the games that are interesting on the Xbox console are also available on PC. Microsoft made that move like a generation ago that any like exclusive Xbox games would also come out for Windows 10. Um, that's like with the Xbox Game Pass and stuff like that. You can play it on both systems. It's a brilliant move for the consumer, which allows us to play all these great games without having to buy the console. It's not that great of a move from a, a, a business point of view, in my opinion, but I will say that the Xbox Series X console is going to be incredibly powerful, and by and large, to get the equivalent power in a computer is probably going to cost you way more than the console itself. So that's the, that's the difference. If you don't have a powerful PC and you still want to play these games, then you can get the really powerful console, which also has the other added benefits of being able to stream like Netflix and shit. You know, consoles are incredibly useful home entertainment devices. And I remember um, with this last generation, Xbox was really pushing that with the Xbox One. They were really going for, this is how this console can help you with all your like daily life stuff. And then PlayStation followed up and we're like, we're just games. The PlayStation 4 is nothing but games. But the PlayStation 4 is still a really good console that allows me to watch like Disney Plus and stuff like that. So, you know, plus and minus. Um, I've never been a big racing fan, but there's a new Forza Motorsport game. I think that's the F1 uh, thing. So that's kind of fun. It's a game called The Gunk, which um, looked kind of charming. I don't really, it's, it's so t hard with these fucking trailers to know what the hell your game's like actually about, but it's a game called the gunk. So woo, that's fun. Um, fantasy star online Two new Genesis, which, huh? Uh, <laughs> I want it. <laughs> I love, um, uh, I love those, those style of games. It's, it looks, it looks really good. It's on like a, anime uh like mmo role-playing thing looks fucking rad some called stalker 2 which i don't think they really told us a whole heck of a lot about it in the in the trailer i i have a vague recollection of what stalker is from like there's like a bell ringing in the back of my head from like 12 years ago um so i'm not 100 percent sure i never played it so Cool stalker too. State of Decay 3, another game I never played. Really cool trailer uh, with that fucking deer. That, I thought that was neat. But I, I think it's a zombie game of some kind. I don't know. Some new Tetris effect game. Boo. Uh, Warhammer 40k Dark Tide, which looks so much. It looked so much like a fucking Left 4 Dead 3 that I got so excited. Um, 
But the thing with these fucking um, Warhammer 40k, like Vermintide and Darktide, like those games are super fucking fun. And they're basically just Left 4 Dead, but set in Warhammer 40k. Um, and that's that's just fantastic. And I'm, I'm super excited. Now this game, I was really, really excited for. From Rare Studios Everwild. We don't know fucking what it is. Um, according to Polygon, which is where I'm getting these games, this list of games, I love Polygon. Um, Rare is still working on its mysterious game set in a magical wilderness with a Breath of the Wild meets Monster Hunter vibe. Now that'd be really cool if they can achieve that. I got super big Avatar The Last Airbender vibes from this. The whole like connection to the, the natural world and all their like super neat animals. Might, like those animals look so fucking cuddly. Oh man. So I don't know what it is. None of us really know what it is, but I'm really intrigued by it. So I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on that. Then there's the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids game, um, which was like my kind of personal nightmare because I will fight like normal giant spiders. Like if I played like Shadow of Mordor or whatever the fuck and I'm fighting like Shelob, I get it. It's big ass fucking spider. It's like the size of an elephant. Totally fine. You shrink my ass down to, like, the size of an ant to fight normal house spiders that are now the size of cart horses? I'm gonna fucking shit myself. That's just... No, I'm not... No. I'm not playing this game. Um, also, it's so disgustingly Honey, I Shrunk the Kids that the fact that this isn't a licensed franchise is absurd to me because it's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It also gave me too much of, a, like, a fucking, um... What's that game? Uh, crap. Uh, Fortnite. It, it gave me too much of a Fortnite vibe. And I think this is going to be a really popular game for, like, a really specific crowd. I just don't think that it's going to be a yeah. The Medium, with its dual reality trailer, where apparently it's rendering two worlds simultaneously with, with like, two characters at the same time, um, is a very interesting concept... I'm interested to see how that plays out mechanically game-wise. Does that mean it's like two-person co-op and you're like sitting next to each other or what? I have absolutely no idea. But that's definitely one I'll be keeping an eye on uh, moving forward. Psychonauts 2 had a trailer uh, with Jack Black um, and that, that looks great. This game has been, um, air quotes, in process for like fucking a decade. So it's about time this thing's finally coming out. Um, Cause fuck. That being said, it looked really good. Um, that kind of like 3D platformer game style that this trailer really focused in on uh, reminded me of like Gex Ender the Gecko and stuff like that from like the 90s. So I'm probably gonna get it because it's it's that style of like that fun, um, yeah, 3D platformer style action game that I, I've missed in in my in my life. Uh, Tell Me Why, another Don't Non game. Uh, and they made Life is Strange, which was phenomenal. Um, I imagine it's going to be just good, because um, Don't Nod usually tells a really good story. Um, I'm just not in, like, you know, it's one of those things, like, when um, people were wondering when, like, the next season of Black Mirror is coming out. It's like, the world right now is, like, dark enough, and I don't need, like, a really intense 
heavy story game in my world right now. Psychonauts 2? Sure, no problem. I can handle that. Tell me why, which may or may not be about a child who may or may not have killed their mother. I'm not, mm, don't think, don't think I'm gonna take a look at that one. What the fuck is this one? I didn't see this. Hold on a second. Balan Wonderworld? Square Enix has a theatrical action platformer in the works set in the imaginary land called Wonderworld. Holy shit, I completely missed this trailer. Um, but the, the image I'm looking at here looks like fucking Nintendo. So, I'm gonna fucking pop this open into YouTube just real quick. Um, and I'm gonna, <laughs> gonna watch that here in a second. Dragon Quest Eleven. I didn't see that either. Echo Generation. Where are all these games coming from? They weren't in the fucking... They weren't in the thing. Oh, yeah, there's the new Ori and the, um... Ori and the, and the, and the blind... And the Will of the Wisps. That's what that one's called. Um, I love the art style of Ori to death. But I suck at platformers, so I've never really played them. But in terms of art style and the lore... Oh my god, it's a beautiful fucking game. Uh, Hello Neighbor 2. Oh, that's good. Um, I, I love that uh, that game studio. They are, they're always so nice at PAX. I'm happy that they're still making and creating and stuff like that. Uh, something called Exo Mecha, which I'm guessing is a new mech game. Uh, let's just take a real quick. Yeah, it's a new mech game. Looks pretty good as far as mech games go. I was never, um, actually kind of looks like Titanfall a little bit with its sidestepping and stuff like that. Oh, there's fucking Transformers. They're Transformers. Holy shit. That game looks rad. Okay, that's fine. Um, I don't know what Echo Generation is, but I'm going to pop that up into YouTube and watch that as well. Why would these, like... Oh, that's kind of pixely. Oh, this looks fine. Echo Generation looks kind of cute. Oh, cool. It's turn-based. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's kind of fun. And then whatever Ball and Wonder World is, I'm just going to really quickly just kind of click through it and see if I can get a get a bead on this game. Uh, definitely Square Enix as fuck. Um... Looks pretty anime. It looks like really Nintendo-y. Apparently they get on the Polar Express and go to this dope-ass world with like flying whales and shit. Oh, is it a 3D action platformer? It looks like a 3D action platformer. Oh, man. Yes, more of these. Oh, yes. Ooh. Oh, it's got dumb suits and stuff too. This is Mario as hell. Look at, look at this fucking Mario game. Look at this. <laughs> Look at Mar it's Mario Odyssey 3. It's called Balan Wonder World. Um, finding true happiness starts with kicking a giant ghost wolf in the dick. Oh, look at these bosses. Uh, that's Mario as fuck. That game's going to be great. So that, that looks like fun. So, all right, all right Microsoft. You, you, you dropped some interesting stuff. Um, I don't think Balan Wonderworld is an as an exclusive to Xbox. I think they just got the got the fucking rights to announce it first. So there you go. But like I said before, if there's anything on Xbox that I that I want to play, I'm just gonna get it for PC, which is the best thing that Microsoft has ever done for the consumer. It's just super exciting. Um, but as always, I do love it when new games get announced. Um, since um, exclusivity breeds competition which is better for us the consumer um in in terms from an economic standpoint but that is a uh, that's just my opinion i hope you all enjoyed the the xbox showcase we're getting pretty close to the holiday season uh when all of these awesome things will drop and we're gonna ignore everything that both sony and microsoft drop because cyberpunk 2077 will have come out by then 
and that's just what we're all going to be playing anyway. In fact, this is such a known in the gaming industry, I think the ground-in trailer was like, while you're waiting for Cyberpunk, take a look at our Honey, I Shrunk the Kids fucking game. And I'm just in here like, well, your game looks dumb, and I can't wait for Cyberpunk. So, I'm going to move on to the next thing in the podcast. Yeah, it's nice to get back to my roots and remember really what makes audiobooks with me just so damn entertaining. That's when I get a little little buzzed and we just have a rollicking good time. It's chapter 15, uh, an invitation in writing. How much would you send an invitation? An invitation in Play-Doh. The next day, November 9th, I woke up only after a long 12-hour slumber. Council, a creature of habit, came to ask how his master's night went and to offer his services. He had left his Canadian friend sleeping like a man who had never done anything else. I let the gallant lad babble as he pleased without giving him much in the way of a reply. I was concerned about Captain Nemo's absence during our session the previous afternoon. I hope to see him again today. The heart yearns where the heart yearns. Soon, I had put on my clothes, which were woven from the strands of seashell tissues. Okay, sure. That sounds incredibly complicated, but whatever. More than once, their composition provoked comments from Council. I informed him that they were made from these smooth silken filaments which, uh, with which the fan muscle, a type of seashell quite abundant along the Mediterranean beaches, attaches itself to rocks. In olden times, fine fabric, stockings, and gloves were made from such filaments because they were both very soft and very warm. So the Nautilus's crew could dress themselves at little cost without needing a thing from cotton growers, sheep, or silkworms on shore. As soon as I was dressed, I made my way to the main lounge. It was deserted. I dove into studying the conchological treasures amassed within the glass cases. Conchological! Whoo, boy. That's a rough one. Let everyone take a swig for that. Mm. His beverage of choice is Big Wave Golden Ale from Kona Brewing Company in Hawaii. It's very pleasant. It's very nice. I like it a lot. Kind of dry. Very um, refreshing for the summer. Good solid beer. Anyway, it's also been a long time since I've had beer, but it's my second one of the day. It's a good thing I got rid of the rest of them by giving them to my friends. So, I also investigated the huge plant albums that were filled with the rarest marine herbs, which, although they were pressed and dried, still kept their wonderful colors. Um, marine herbs? Okay. Among these valuable water plants, I noticed various seaweeds, some Cladostephus verticillatus, peacock tails, fig leaved calper calpera, grain bearing beauty bushes. That was awesome. Grain bearing beauty bushes. Delicate rose tangle tinted scarlet sea colander, arranged into fan shapes, mermaid cups that look like the caps of squat mushrooms, and for years had been classified among the zoophytes. In short, a complete series of alligators. The entire day passed without my being honored by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels in the lounge didn't open. Perhaps they didn't want us to get tired of these beautiful things. The Nautilus kept to an east-northeasterly heading, a speed of 12 miles per hour, and a depth of 50 and 60 meters. Wait, a depth between 50 and 60 meters. I thought it was being like 50 and 60 meters. Like, some sometimes they do that. The next day, November 10th, in case you lost track, the same neglect, the same solitude. I didn't see a soul from the crew. Ned and Council spent the better part of the day with me. They were astonished at the captain's inexplicable absence. Was this eccentric man ill? Did he want to change his plans concerning us? 
But after all, as Council noted, we enjoyed complete freedom. We were daintily and abundantly fed. Our host had kept the, to the terms of his agreement. We couldn't complain. Moreover, the very uniqueness of our situation had such generous rewards in store for us, we found no grounds for criticism. Besides the fact that you can't leave. But, you know, whatever. I guess that's that's fine. That day, I started my diary of these adventures, with uh, which he has which has enabled me to narrate them with the most scrupulous accuracy and um and one odd detail i wrote in i wrote it on paper manufactured from marine eelgrass so i guess now canonically we're back at the beginning of the book because that's what he's writing early in the morning on november 11th the fresh air poured through the nautilus's interior informing them that we had returned to the surface of the ocean to renew our oxygen supply I headed for the central companionway and climbed onto the platform. It was 6 o'clock. I found the weather overcast, the sea gray but calm. Hardly a billow. I hoped to encounter Captain Nemo there. Would he come? I only saw the helmsman imprisoned in his glassed window pilot house. Seated on the ledge furnished by the hull off the skip, I inhaled the sea salty aroma with great pleasure. Little by little, the mists were dispersed under the actions of the sun's rays. The radiant orb cleared uh, the eastern horizon. Under its gaze, the sea caught on fire like a trail of gunpowder. Scattered on high, the clouds were colored in bright, wonderfully shaded hues, and numerous ladyfingers warned of day-long winds. Apparently, it has put an asterisk by ladyfingers in case I don't know what ladyfingers are. They're a type of biscuit. They're a type of cookie. They're used in, um, like, fucking, uh, uh, fuck. They're used in, um, shit. Parfaits? No, what are they called? It's like, yeah, it's a fucking... Oh, like a trifle? They, they, they're used in trifles a fair time? It's a good stacking cookie. Anyway. But what were mere winds to this Nautilus, which no storm could intimidate? Well, so I was marveling at this delightful sunrise, so life-giving and cheerful, when I heard someone climbing onto the platform. I was prepared to greet Captain Nemo, but it was his chief officer who had appeared, whom I had already met during our first visit with the captain. He advanced over the platform, not seeming to notice my presence. A powerful spyglass to his eye, he scrutinized every point on the horizon with utmost care. Then, as examination over, he approached the hatch and pronounced a phrase whose exact wording falls below. I remember it because every morning it was repeated under the same circumstances. It ran like this. Natron respok lorli vich. Which it meant, what it meant, I was unable to say. These words pronounced, the chief officer went below again. I thought the Nautilus was about to resume its underway navigation, so I went down the hatch and back through the gangway to my stateroom. Five days passed in this way with no change in our situation. Every morning, I climbed onto the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual. Captain Nemo did not appear. I was pursuing my pol the policy. Pursuing the policy that we had seen the last of him went on November 16th. While re-entering my stateroom with Ned and Council, I found a note addressed to me on the table. I opened it impatiently. It was written in a script that was clear and neat, but a bit odd, Old English in style. Its characters reminded me of the German calligraphy. The word, the note uh, was worded as follows. The note was worded as follows. I stumble over the simplest sentences, but I can say conchology, conchological fucking perfectly the first time, even though I didn't just then, which defeats the purpose. Professor Arnox, aboard the Nautilus, November 16th, 1867. Captain Nemo invites Professor Arnox on a hunting trip that will take place tomorrow morning in his Crespo Islands forest. He hopes nothing will prevent the professor from attending, and he looks forward uh, with the pleasure to the professor's companions joining him. Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. Uh, oh, who's talking? Ned. A hunting trip, then exclaimed. Um, and in his forest on Crespo Island, Council added. But does this mean the old boat go the old boy goes ashore? Ned went on. That seems to be the gist of it, I said rereading the letter. Well, if, uh, well, if we've got to accept, the Canadian answered. Once we're on solid ground, we'll figure out a course of action. Besides, wouldn't it paid me to eat a couple of slices of fresh venison? Without trying to reconcile the contradiction between Captain Nemo's professed horror of continents or islands and his invitation to go hunting in a forest, 
I was content to reply. First, let's look into the, to this Crespo Island. I don't know, what did the exact wording say? Um, in his Crespo Island forests. So it's probably like a forest of kelp would be my guess. Anyway, I consulted the world map in latitude 32 degrees, 40 feet north and longitude 167 degrees, 50 feet west. Found an islet that had been discovered in 1801 by Captain Crespo, which old Spanish charts called Roca de la Plata. In other words, Silver Rock. So we were about uh, 1,800 miles from our starting point, and by a slight change of heading, the Nautilus was bringing us back towards the southeast. I showed my companions the small stray rock in the middle of the North Pacific. If Captain Nemo does sometimes go ashore, I told him, at least he pick, he, at least he only picks deserted islands. Nedlin shook his head without replying. Then he and Council left me. After supper uh, was served me served me by the mute and emotionless steward, I fell asleep, but not without some anxieties. When I woke up the next day, that was awesome. November 17th, I sensed that Nautilus was completely motionless. I dressed hurriedly and entered the main lounge. Captain Nemo was there waiting for me. He stood up, bowed, and asked me asked if it suited me to come along. Since he made no allusions to his absence the past eight fucking days, I also refrained from mentioning it. And I simply answered that my companions and I were ready to go with him. Uh, hold on, I'm going to pour myself a, a nice cup of tea here. It's important to maintain a, a nice balance between inebriation and sobriety when reading such things. Otherwise, I'll do too much of one or the other, and then that's just no fun for anybody. You know, I find that healthy middle ground. Like a boat. Too much to port or starboard side. Whole thing goes under. Gotta find that healthy, that healthy balance with, like, the fucking thing that keeps the boat standing up. You know, the one, the rudder. No, that's not it, but who cares? Um, only so, I added, I'll take the liberty of addressing a question to you. Um, address away, Professor Arnox, and if I am able to answer, I will. Well then, Captain, how is it that you've severed all ties with the shore, yet you own forests on Crespo Island? Professor, the captain asked me, these forests are mine. Do not bask in the heat and light of the sun. They aren't frequented by lions, tigers, panthers, or other quadrupeds. They are known only to me. They grow only for me. The forests aren't on lands. They're actual underwater forests. Underwater forests! I exclaimed. Yes, Professor. And you are offering to take me to them? Precisely. On foot? Without getting your feet wet. While hunting? While hunting. Rifles in hand? Rifles in hand. I stared at the Nautilus's commander with an air of anything but flattering to the old man. Assuredly, I said to myself, he's contradicted some mental illness. He's had a fit that lasted eight days and isn't even over yet. What a shame. I liked him better eccentric than insane. These thoughts were clearly readable on my face, but Captain Nemo remained content with inviting me to follow him. And I did so like a man resigned to the worst. We arrived in the dining room where we found breakfast served. Professor Arnold, the captain told me, I beg you to share my breakfast without formality. We can chat while we eat. Because, although I promised you a stroll in my forests, I made no pledge to arrange for you encountering a restaurant there. Accordingly, eat your breakfast like a man who will probably eat dinner only when it is extremely late. I did justice to this meal. I love that. Eat your breakfast like a man who will probably eat dinner only when it is extremely late. I love it. It was made up of various fish, some slices of sea cucumber, that praiseworthy zoophyte, that praiseworthy zoophyte, all garnished with such highly appetizing seaweed as the Porophora lacinidia and the Laurentia primafitia. Sure. Our beverage consisted of clear water, to which, following the captain's example, I added some drops of a fermented liquor extracted from the Kamchat 
Kata process of the, from the seaweed known by the name of Rhodomenia palamata. I first got to Nemo 8 without pronouncing a single word. Then t he told me, Professor, when I proposed that you go hunting in my Crespo forests, you thought I was contradicting myself. When I informed you that it was an issue of underwater forests, you thought I had gone insane. Professor, you must never make snap judgments about your fellow man. You fuck. But Captain, believe me, kindly listen to me. And then you'll see if you have grounds for accusing me of insanity or self-contradiction. I'm all attention, Professor. You know as well as I that a man can live underwater for as long as he carries with him his own supply of breathable air. For underwater work projects, the workman wears a waterproof suit with his head imprisoned in a metal capsule, where he receives air from above by means of force pumps and floor regulators. That's standard equipment for a diving suit? I said, correct, but under such conditions, the man has no freedom. He's attached to a pump that sends him air through an India rubber hose. It's an actual chain that fetters him to the shore. And if we were to be bound in this way to the Nautilus, we could not go far either. Then how do you break free? I asked. We use the Ronaglec... What the fuck are these words? Roquireal Denariosil device. We use this bullshit device, invented by two of your fellow countrymen, but refined by me for my own special uses, thereby enabling you to risk these new psych physiological conditions without suffering any organic disorders. It consists of a tank built from heavy sheet iron, in which I store air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This tank is fastened to their backs by means of straps like a soldier's knapsack. Its top part forms a box where the air is regulated by a bellows mechanism that can be released only to um, only at its proper tension. In the bullshit device that has been used in generally, two Indian rubber hoses leave this box and feed to a kind of tent that imprisons the operator's nose and mouth. One hose is for the entrance of air to be inhaled, the other is for the exit of air to be exhaled, and the tongue closes off the forebore of the latter, depending on the breather's needs. But in my case, since I face considerable pressures at the bottom of the sea, I needed to enclose my head in a copper sphere, like those found on standard diving suits, and the two hoses for insulation and exhalation now feed to that sphere. That's perfect, Captain Nemo. The air you must carry must be quickly depleted. Once it, uh, it contains no more than 15% oxygen, it becomes unfit for breathing. Surely, but that I told you, Professor Knox. The Nautilus's pumps enable me to store air under considerable pressure. And given the circumstance, the tank on my diving equipment can supply breathable air for 9 or 10 hours. That's fucking horseshit. Modern scuba diving tanks can last like upwards of an hour, maybe an hour and a half, depending on how much air you're breathing in. 9 or 10 hours? Fucking bullshit. Unless these things are like the size of a goddamn trash can on your back. Which would be incredibly heavy. There's no way. I call bullshit on this, Captain Nemo. I don't care what kind of fucking device you've got. Solid copper bell and sheet iron tanks with 50 atmospheres of pressure in there. No fucking way. No way. Alright, let's, let's see how this goes. I have no more objections to raise, I replied. I only ask you, Captain, how can you light your way at the bottom of the oceans? With the Rumenkopf device, Professor Arnox. If the first is carried on the back, the second is fastened to the belt. It consists of a Ponson battery that I activate not with 
potassium dichromate, but with sodium. An induction coil gathers the electricity generated and directs it to a specially designed lantern. In this lantern, one finds a glass spiral that contains only a residue of carbon dioxide gas. When the device is operating, this gas becomes luminous and gives off a continuous whitish light, thus provided for I breathe and I see. Captain Nemo. Captain Nemo. To my every objection, you give such crushing answers, I'm afraid to entertain a single doubt. However, though I have no choice but to accept both bullshit and other bullshit devices, I'd like to register some reservations about the rifle with which you'll equip me. But it isn't the rifle that uses gunpowder, the captain replied. Then it is an air gun. Surely, how can I make gunpowder on my ship when I have no saltpeter, sulfur, or charcoal? E even so... I replied, to fire underwater in a medium that is 885 times denser than air, you'd have to overcome considerable resistance. That doesn't necessarily follow. There are certain Fulton-style guns perfected by the Englishman Felipe Coles and Burley, the Frenchman Fursi, and the Italian Landy. They are equipped with a specialist system of airtight fastenings that can fire underwater conditions. But I repeat, having no gunpowder, I replaced it with air at high pressure, which is abundantly supplied to me by the Nautilus's pumps. But this air must be swiftly depleted. Well, in a pinch, I can't buy... In a pinch, I can't my bullshit tank supply me with more? All I have to do is draw it from the ad hoc spigot. Well, there's an asterisk there. Do I, I know what a spigot is? Let's see how it explains it. Anyway. Besides, Professor Allnox, you'll see for yourself that during these underwater hunting trips, we make no great expenditure of either air or bullets. Latin. Oh, it's right there. The, the Latin. A spigot. For just that purpose. Ad hoc spigot. Oh. I guess they're defining ad hoc here, but they also wrote what the word spigot means. I know what a spigot is. Anyway, that's fine. But it seems to me that in the semi-darkness, amid this liquid that's so dense in, uh, in comparison to the atmosphere, a gunshot can, can far, couldn't carry far and would prove fatal only with difficulty. Um, on the contrary, sir. With this rifle, every shot is fatal. And as soon as an animal is hit, no matter how lightly... It falls as if struck by lightning. Why? Because this rifle does not shoot ordinary bullets, but little glass capsules invented by the Austrian chemist Leninbrock. And I have a considerable supply of them. These glass capsules are covered with a strip of steel and weighted with a lead base. They are genuine little leaden jars charged with high-voltage electricity. They go off at the slightest impact, and the animal, no matter how strong, drops dead. I might add... That these capsules are no bigger than a number four shot in the chamber that any ordinary rifle could hold ten of them. I'll quit debating, I replied, getting up from the table. And, th and all that's left for me is to shoulder my rifle. So where you go, I'll go. Captain Nemo led me to the Nautilus's stern, passing by Nan and Council's cabins, and I summoned my two companions who instantly followed us. Apparently they don't get fucking breakfast. When we arrived at the cell, located with an easy access to the engine room, in the cell where we were dressed to go for all our stroll. Author's note. Lady fingers are small, thin, white clouds with ragged edges. Sure. Sure. You know, that's fine. They're not biscuits or cookies or whatever. They're clouds. So, I was saying this to a couple of people a while back that after Hamilton landed on Disney+, Plus, what I wanted them to do was to point a camera at every other goddamn musical they can get their hands on and put that up to where we can witness it, to where we can see it. Like, the Lion King musical would be amazing. I know Frozen's on Broadway. That'd be incredible. Um, I did not expect uh, the first 
follow-up musical to come to us from the Disney Cruise Lines. But it has, and it's available, and now you can watch it. If you go to Disney Parks on YouTube, of all places, you can watch the, the Disney Cruise Line version of Tangled. They've, they've done a, a, a full, like, Broadway-level production. It's about an hour long. Um, I've seen the first song of it so far. I'm going to finish it uh, later tonight. But I'm just like, Disney's just popping up stuff all over in weird, interesting places. The Disney Parks YouTube channel is home to some really good stuff. Uh, like ride-throughs. They'll do uh, recordings of the parades, the fireworks shows, meeting members of the cast and stuff like that. A lot of really cool stuff. But this is the first time they've uploaded a, a big old actual factual musical. I remember they did like a check out Beauty and the Beast thing on the Disney Cruise Lines. But that was just kind of like a like a, an 18-minute like micro-documentary about the production level that went into the, the actual... Um, Production. It wasn't the. It wasn't the the full musical. This is the full musical. This is from A to C. The whole thing. It's right there, and I think that's really cool. And I want Disney to do more things like this. I need them to do more documentaries, and I need them to do more musicals. So I thought that was really cool. But that's not the point of this segment. Me talking about Tangled the musical. It's not the point. Last week we talked about. Was it last week? I think it was last week. Last week we spoke about HBO Max. Which is, you know, HBO's new streaming service. It's replacing HBO Now. Had some original stuff. Whatever the fuck. This time, we're going to talk about Peacock. And if you don't know what Peacock is, it's probably because it's fairly new and pretty unobtrusive. If you have Xfinity or Comcast cable, you already have Peacock. It's included with your cable. So right off the bat, it's pretty nice. Right? It's not extra. It's the first air quotes free streaming service. I say air quotes because you can't have it for free if you don't have Comcast cable. That's fine. I don't know if you can buy it separately. I haven't checked. And I'm going to tell you right now it's not worth it, but that's fine. You know, whatever. Um, but I did, you know, poke around and look at it. Number one, they have a, a adaptation of Brave New World, which is one of those, one of the most notorious books I've ever read. In that, I don't think it's a good book or a good story, but it fucking sticks to your ribs. And I'll remember that book till the day I die. I, I would never read it again, and I wouldn't encourage other people to read it unless you really want to. But that being said, the show actually looks kind of good. It looks like the show was made with one hell of a fucking budget. It looks amazing. And the cast is pretty strong. Like Demi Moore and the dude that played Han Solo and Solo. And that fucking other dude who I've seen in like a million and uh, half things that I can't remember his name. It looks good. I'm not going to watch it. But it looks good. So take that for what it's worth. Poking around, you know. it's you know. So Comcast um, owns NBC Universal. So that's where the vast majority of the content is coming from. So you got NBC shows, Parks and Rec. Saturday Night Live, those sorts of things. You've got uh, like old reruns of like Johnny Carson and stuff like that on there. I think the the old movie stuff that Peacock has is where its value lies. Because it has Universal, you can see Dracula, you can see The Wolfman, you can see Frankenstein, you can see all of those original like 1930s, 1940s Universal monster movies. And that's awesome. 
right? The best part for me for HBO Max was the Turner Classic movie stuff where you could see Casablanca and Singing in the Rain and all that stuff. Peacock brings out like Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman and uh, Road to Morocco with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Like really good classic fucking movies just right there. So that's the value of Peacock for me. If you're really into those old school universal monster movies or any of those movies from like the 50s where it's like, it came from outer space or Creature of the Black Lagoon, like that sort of, those sort of like drive-in summer movie horror fillics where it's just like a fucking tarantula walking down a miniature set and people are just screaming their heads off. Those movies are on Peacock and that's its value. It also has um, The Carol of Burnett Show and um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents um, are on Peacock as well. Peacock also does an interesting thing. It has like movies like The Matrix and Shrek and stuff on there. Um, but it will only show you the Rotten Tomatoes score of those movies if the Rotten Tomatoes score of those movies is a positive score. If the movie blows ass, like the other two Matrix movies, which are also on there, it does not tell you the Rotten Tomatoes score because those movies suck. And I thought that was really interesting. If you want to watch a good movie, this movie is a 91% Rotten Tomatoes, so that's fun. What about this one? Oh, you're not going to tell me. It's probably because it's terrible. Why wouldn't you tell them if it's terrible? You have it on your streaming site. You already know it's terrible. Just fucking, you're doing more work having it not show the Rotten Tomatoes score, in my opinion, you know? You coded it for once, now code it for all of them. I don't know. But yeah, if Peacock cost any amount of money, I wouldn't recommend it. Peacock is free with Xfinity ca like cable, and I still wouldn't recommend it. Like, it's it's got some stuff on there. It's a really niche uh, fucking catalog, and it's small. I looked for, like, movies for kids. There were 10 fucking movies in that category on Peacock. 10. It's like the smallest catalog of any streaming service I've ever seen. You're flipping through movies. One of its top categories for movies was Nicolas Cage. It showed me 10 Nicolas Cage movies. I hadn't heard of fucking any of them. Where do they get these movies? It's the equivalent of, like, a Walmart $2 like DVD bargain bin for a streaming service. That's what Peacock is. Peacock could be really good. Peacock is going to have the goddamn Adventure Zone TV show on it. And I'm like, fuck. I'm going to have to watch it for that, if nothing else. So it's got at least one really good show coming. I cannot wait for the Adventure Zone TV show. But right now, Peacock has got jack fuck all for a streaming service. Jack fuck all all nothing worth it that being said i do love bob hope and i'm probably gonna watch some of those road two movies because they're just they're just fun and bob hope's hilarious so yeah but yeah that was my experience with with peacock speaking of streaming services i really need to get back on the hbo max train because that's gonna go here like any day now and i still have like 30 things to watch it's ironic it's almost like i'm moving and i'm incredibly busy so i don't have time to watch shit oh well I'm gonna go finish the Tangled musical because <laughs> I'm just a hypocrite incarnate. And uh, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 16. Strolling the plains of, of Mordor. I'm destroy that ring. It fucking kills me. Fuck you, Gollum. Asshole. This cell, properly speaking, was the Nautilus's arsenal and wardrobe. Hanging from its walls, a dozen diving outfits were waiting for anybody who wanted to take a stroll. After seeing these, Ned Land exhibited an obvious distaste for the idea of putting one on. But my gallant Ned, I told him, the forests of Crespo Island are simply underwater forests. Oh, great. 
put in uh, the disappointed harpooner watching his dreams of fresh meat made fade away. And you, Professor Arnox, you're going to stick yourself inside these clothes? It has to be, Mr. Ned. Have your way, sir, the harpooner replied, shrugging his shoulders. But speaking for myself, I'll never get into those things unless they force me to. No one will force you, Mr. Land, Captain Nemo said. And if Council is going to risk it, Ned asked. Where Master goes, I go, Council replied. At the captain's summons, two crewmen came up to help. Came up, came to help us. Jesus. Put on these heavy waterproof clothes made from seamless India rubber. With expressly designed to bear considerable pressures. You know, I'm sure it's intentional. Uh, but the fact that Nemo goes on and on about how like, Ah, fuck the mainland. But also, without the mainland, I would not have this lovely Indian rubber. Or these cool Austrian bullets. Or literally fucking anything. Because all of these things were built as part of the mainland. I don't... You are a being of contradictions, Captain Nemo. And I believe that's the point. But it's in kind of—it's kind of annoying. Nemo, I'll be honest. It's a little irritating. You don't—you don't really care about one side of the fence or the other. You just go with whatever the fuck makes you happy, which is fine. I'm okay with it if you just fucking owned up to it, like originally. I do what makes me happy, wherever it comes from. I don't give a fuck. That would be fine. At least you would have been honest then. Now you're just a—now you're just a piece of shit. Well, you know, that's fine, whatever. It's not my fucking submarine. Anyway, where, where the fuck I was it? They were like suits of armor that were both yielding and resistant, you might say. These clothes consisted of jackets and pants. The pants ended in bulky footwear adorned with heavy lead soles. The fabric of the jacket was reinforced with copper mail that shielded the chest, protected from the water's pressure, and allowed the lungs to function freely. The sleeves ended in supple gloves that didn't impede hand movements. My, uh, my fucking laundry's done in the dryer all folded after this chapter. These perfect, perfected diving suits. Uh, it was uh, these perfected diving suits. It was easy to see were a far cry from the misshapen costumes as the cork breastplates, leather jumpers, seagoing tunics, barrel helmets, etc., invented and claimed in the 18th century. Council and I were soon dressed in these diving suits, as were Captain Nemo and one of his companions, a Herculean type, who must have been prodigiously strong. All that remained was to encase one's head in its metal sphere. But before proceeding with this operation, I asked Captain uh, for permission to examine the rifle set aside for us. One of the Nautilus's men presented me with a streamlined rifle whose butt was boilerplate steel hollow inside and of fairly large dimensions. This served as a tank for compressed air, which a trigger-operated valve could release into the metal chamber. In a groove where the butt was heaviest, a cartridge clip held some 20 electric bullets that, by means of a spring, automatically took their places in the barrel of the rifle. As soon as one shot had been fired, another was ready to go off. Captain Nemo, I said, this is an ideal easy-to-use weapon. I ask only to put it to the test, but how will we reach the bottom of the sea? Right now, Professor, the Nautilus is aground in 10 meters of water, and we have only to depart. But how will we set out? You'll see. Shut the fuck up. Captain Nemo inserted his cranium into its spherical headgear. Council and I did the same, but not without hearing the Canadian toss of his sarcastic, happy hunting. On top of the suit ended in a collar of threaded copper, onto which the metal helmet was screwed. Three holes protected by heavy glass allowed us to see in any direction with simply a with a simple turn of the head inside the sphere. Placed on our backs, the bullshit device went into operation as soon as it was in position, and for my part, I could breathe with ease. The room cough lamp hanging from my belt rifle in hand, I was ready to go forth. But in all honesty, while imprisoned in these heavy clothes nailed to the deck by my lead soles, it was impossible for me to take a single step. But this circumstance had been foreseen because I felt myself propelled into a little room adjoining the wardrobe. 
towed in the same way my companions went with me. I heard a door with a watertight seal close after us, and we were surrounded by profound darkness. After some minutes, a sharp hissing reached my ears. I felt a distinct sensation of cold rising from my feet to my chest. Apparently, a stopcock inside the boat was letting in water from the outside, which overran us and soon filled up the room. Contrived in the Nautilus's size, a second door opened. We were lit by a subdued with a by a subdued light. An instant later, our feet were treading the bottom of the sea. And now, how can I convey the impressions left on me by this stroll under the waters? Words are powerless to describe such wonders. Even when painters brush, uh, even when, when, wow, god damn. I haven't struggled like this to read a sentence in quite some time. I also have not consumed beer in this copious amounts in quite some time. When even the painter's brush cannot depict the effects unique to the liquid element, how can the writer's pen hope to reproduce them? Captain Nemo walked in front and his companion followed us a few steps to the rear. Council and I stood next to each other as if daydreaming that through our metal carapaces, a little polite conversation might still be possible. Although I no longer felt the bulkiness of my clothes, footwear, and air tank, nor the weight of the heavy spheres inside of which my head was rattling like an almond in its shell. Once immersed in the water, all these objects lost a part of their weight equal to the weight of the liquid they displaced, and thanks to the laws of physics discovered by Archimedes, I did just fine. I was no longer an inert mass, and I had, comparatively speaking, greater freedom of movement. Or great freedom of movement, rather. Lightening up the seafloor even 30 feet beneath the surface of the ocean, the sun astonished me with its powers. The solar rays crossed easily crossed this um, aqueous mass and dispersed its dark colors. I could easily distinguish objects 100 meters away. 100 meters of underwater visibility, you say? Well, that's impressive. How fucking, how fucking far is that? 302, 328 feet in front of you, you can see on the water, huh? It's impressive. I call bullshit, but it's impressive. Of course, I live in the fucking Pacific Northwest where you're lucky if you can see your fucking hand in front of your face if you go into those waters. But they're the murkiest waters in the world. Can't see shit. Farther on, the bottom was tinted with fine shades of ultramarine. Then, off to the distance, it turned uh, uh, blue and faded in the midst of a dark, hazy darkness. Truly, this water surrounding me was just a uh, kind of air denser than the atmospheres on land, but almost as transparent. Above me, I could see the calm surface of the ocean. We were walking on sand that was fine-grained and smooth, not wrinkled like beach sand, which preserves the impressions left by the waves. This dazzling carpet was a real mirror, throwing back the sun's rays with startling intensity. The outcome, an immense vista of reflections that penetrated every liquid molecule. Will anyone believe me if I assert that at this 30-foot depth, I could see as if it was broad daylight? No! No, we won't! Fuck you, Arnox, you're bullshitting me. Bullshitting the bullshitter. For a quarter of an hour, I trod this blazing sand, which was strewn with tiny crumbs of seashells. Looming like a long roof, the Nautilus's hull disappeared little by little when night fell in the midst of waters. A ship's beacon would surely facilitate our return to on board, since its rays carried with perfect distinctness. This effect is difficult to understand for anyone who has never seen light beams so sharply defined on shore. There, it, the, there the dust that saturates the air gives such rays an appearance of a luminous fog, but above water... As well as underwater, shafts of electric light are transmitted with incomparable clarity. Meanwhile, we went ever onward, and these vast plains of sands seemingly seemed endless. Well, I suppose, for lack of all intents and purposes, they are endless. My hands parted liquid curtains that closed behind me again, and my footprints faded swiftly under the water's pressure. Soon, scarcely blurred by their distance from us, the forms of some objects took shape before my eyes. I recognized the lower slopes of some magnificent rocks carpeted by the finest zoophyte specimens, and right off, I was struck by the by an effect unique to this medium. By then, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. 
The sun's rays hit the surface of the waves at a fairly oblique angle, decomposing by fraction, uh, refraction, as though passing through a prism. And when this light came in contact with flowers, rocks, buds, seashells, and polyps, the edges of these objects were shaded in all seven hues of the solar spectrum. This riot of rainbow tints was a wonder, a feast for the eyes, a genuine kaleidoscope of red, green, yellow, orange, violet, indigo, and blue. In short, the whole palette of a color-happy painter. If only I had been able to share it with Count Sol, the intense sensations rising in my brain, competing competing with him in exclamations of wonderment. If only I had known, like Captain Nemo and his companion, how to exchange thoughts by means of prearranged signals. So for lack of anything better, I talked to myself. I declaimed in this copper box that topped my head, spending more air on empty words than was perhaps advisable. <clears throat> Council like me had stopped before the splendid slate. Obviously, in the presence of these zoophyte mollusk specimens, this fine land was classifying his head off. Polyps and echinoderms astounded, abounded on the seafloor. Various Isis coral, cornolian coral living in isolation. Tufts of Virgil, uh, virginial genus Acluna, formerly known by its name of white coral. Prickly fungus corals in the shape of mushroom sea anemones holding on... Uh, by their muscular discs, providing a literal flower bed adorned by jellyfish of the genus Porpita, wearing colors of azure tentacles and starfish that were spangled the, uh, the sand, including vein-like feather stars from the genus Astaphyton that were like fine lace embroidered by the hands of water nymphs. Their festoons swaying in faint undulations caused by our walking. It filled me with real chagrin to crush underfoot the gleaming mollusk samples that littered the sea floor by the thousands Concentric comb shells, hammer shells, conchoquina, seashells that actually hop around, top shell snails, red helmet shells, angel wing conks, sea hares, and so many other uh, exhibits from this inexhaustible ocean. But we had to keep walking. And we went forward while overhead there scuttled schools of Portuguese men of war that let their ultramarine tentacles drift in their wake. Portuguese man of wars? Aren't those like the fucking deadliest asshole jellyfish ever? I can't remember. Medusas, whose milky white or dainty pink parasols were festooned with azure tassels and shaded us from the sun's rays, plus jellyfish of the species Pelagia panopria, that in the dark would have strewn our path with phosphorescent glimmers. All these runders I glimpsed in the space of a quarter of a mile, barely pausing, following Captain Nemo, whose gestures kept beckoning me onward. I wonder what they're hunting for. Is it perhaps the Kraken? Seattle just announced that the name of our fucking hockey team is the Seattle Kraken, which, you know, will lead to such great puns like, release the Kraken. But then those people on the internet are being like, so are the fucking fans of the Krakens going to be called the Crackheads? <laughs> I prefer crackers personally, but, you know, that's, um, that could just be me. Um, Krakenets. Krakonets. Squids. Let's call ourselves the squids. Anyway. I was thinking that'd be fun if instead of, like, a mascot of, like, somebody in, like, a Kraken suit with, like, fake tentacles, they just built, like, a fucking giant anthropomorphic, um, like, animatronic, uh, not anthropomorphic, animatronic, um, Kraken, like, in the corner of the stadium that just, like, lights up with, like, smoke effects and shit every time we score and it just, like, roars throughout the stadium. I'm like, that's, that's what I would do. I wouldn't do, like, a, a guy in a suit mascot. I would have this fucking giant robot. That would just, like, fucking wiggle tentacles and stuff, and people could take pictures with it, like, all the time. And it wouldn't even be a thing. That's what I would do, personally. Plus, it'd be dope as hell. So, where was I? Soon, the nature of the seafloor changed. The plains of sands were followed by a bed of that viscous slime Americans call ooze. 
which is compared exclusively of sea, which is composed exclusively of seashells rich in limestone or silica. Then we crossed a prairie of algae, open sea plants that the waters hadn't yet torn loose, whose vegetation grew in wild profusion. Soft to the foot, these densely textured lawns would have rivaled the most luxuriant carpets woven by the hands of man. But the surface of the water that was crisscrossed by a floating arbor of marine plants belonging to the superabundant algae family that numbered more than 2,000 known species. I saw long ribbons of fuckus drifting above me, some globular, others tubular. Laurentia cladostephius with the slenderest foliage. Vridomana palamata, resembling the fan shapes of cacti, observed the green-colored plants that kept closer to the surface of the sea, while the reds occupied a medium depth, which left the blacks and browns in charge of designing the gardens and flower beds of the ocean's lower strata. These algae are a genuine prodigy of creation, one of the wonders of the world of world flora. This family produces both the biggest and smallest vegetables in the world because just as 40,000 nearly invisible buds have been counted in one five square in one five square millimeter space, so also have fucus plants been gathered that were over 500 meters long. We had been gone from the Nautilus for about an hour and a half. I would say it was almost moon. I spotted this fact in the perpendicularity of the sun's rays, which no longer refracted. The magic of these solar colors disappeared little by little, with emeralds and sapphire shades vanishing from our surroundings altogether. We walked with steady steps that rang on the seafloor with astonishing intensity. The tiniest sounds were transmitted with a speed uh, to which the ears were unaccustomed to on shore. In fact, the water is a better conductor of sound than air, and under the waves, noises carry four times as fast. Just then, the seafloor began to slope sharply downward. The light That's true, by the way, about the sound waves. Yeah. Uh, began to slip sharply downward. The light took on a uniform hue. We reached a depth of 100 meters, by which point we were undergoing a pressure of 10 atmospheres. But my diving clothes were built along such lines that I never suffered from this pressure. I felt only a certain tightness in the joints of my fingers. And even this discomfort soon disappeared. As for the exhaustion bound to accompany a two-hour stroll in such unfamiliar trappings, it was nil. Helped by the water, my movements were ex executed with startling ease. Arriving at this 300-foot depth, I still detected the sun's rays, but just barely. Their intense brilliance had been followed by a reddish twilight, a midpoint between day and night. But we could see well enough on uh, to find our way, and it still wasn't necessary to activate the room corf device. Just then, Captain Nemo stopped. I, he waited until I joined him, then he pointed a finger at some dark masses outlined in the shadows a short distance away. It's the forest of Crespo Island, I thought, and I was not mistaken. But that is the end of the chapter, so we're going to have to figure out what happens in the next one. One of the things we like to do on this show is I like to get out into nature. Um, I don't know why I said we, like this is a, like this is a group adventure. Uh, but I went camping. Um, I suppose it's as much of a group adventure as anything is on this podcast where we kind of experience it together in the, in the art of the telling. But that's fine. I went to... Where the fuck did I go? It was um, Fort Townsend Campground near Port Townsend, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula. I was there for a grand total of one night, and it was one of my favorite kinds of camping. Car camping. Where you are not but fucking 20 feet from your vehicle. Which means you can haul just way more shit out there and make your campground like super cozy and comfortable. So I had... An air mattress, I had my hammock, I had like every bell and whistle I had in my possession to make it just a really comfortable experience. Um, that being said, even when it's all said and done, you can't get over the fact that like the tent is fucking thinner than paper, so no sound proofing whatsoever. You hear 
everything in that tent. You hear when a pine needle hits the top of your tent. You just, it's like, ding, ding. It's just like, just enough because it's so fucking quiet. You can hear those things. It was really fun. I went with my, uh, my brother and his wife and we just, you know, we had some food. We sat around the campfire and like talked late into the night drinking lots of beer. Um, and it was, it was a really good time. And then the next day we went out to Fort Warden, which is, uh, closer to the actual city of Port Townsend, uh, where we explored the old batteries there. There was an old military installation and you can like go and climb the ladders in between the levels and explore like these really dark, narrow corridors. Um, like you need your phone flashlight cause it's, there are, there's no overhead lighting in there. It's just, it's fucking dark as hell and it's always dark as hell in there. So it's very cool. Um, and then I decided instead of taking the ferry across the water to get home, uh, what I ended up doing was I actually went down the peninsula, um, up and around Puget Sound, like up through Tacoma. Um, and if you're familiar with the area, you're probably thinking to yourself, that seems like an incredibly long detour. Why'd you do that? It was actually only about 26 minutes or it's actually 16 minutes slower than taking the ferry. So instead of two hours and 10 minutes, it took two hours and 26 minutes. Um, like that's pretty it doesn't even matter at that point right it's it's just a, a handful of minutes you're driving over two hours either way you slice it and i do love the ferry but i went and saw a friend um on the journey as well and it was it was fun to hang out with them for a bit before i had to carry on home where i got stuck in traffic like twice and it was awful these people just keep getting into car accidents why would you do such a thing but yeah it was my second time camping the first time i went camping uh was very interesting because not only was it a bachelor's party and I was there with like 10 dudes, nine of whom I've never met before. Um, but I also had to wake up at four in the morning to go to wild waves. Um, I actually told this story in the podcast, like a long, long time ago. I'm sure you can go back and find it. I don't remember what episode it was, but it was nice to be able to camp and actually like sleep in a little bit. Like we woke up at like eight 30 ish. Um, and tearing down the, the camping stuff took like no time at all. It was, um, it was really, it was really nice. And I hope I get to camp at least once more before the year is up, but gosh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. The, the world is busy right now. I'm a couple of weeks away from moving and I've got a, I got a lot of stuff I need to do before, before then. So who's to say, but for now, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 17 underwater forest. We had finally arrived on the outskirts of this forest, surely one of the finest Captain Nemo's immense domains. He regarded it as his own, and had laid the same claim to it that in the first days of the world the first men had to their forests on land. Besides, who else could dispute his ownership of this underwater property? What other bolder pioneer would come axe in hand to clear away its dark underbrush? This forest was made up of big tree-like plants that when we entered beneath their huge arches, my eyes were instantly struck by the unique arrangement of the branches, an arrangement I had never before encountered. None of the weeds carpeting the seafloor, none of the branches bristling up from the shrubbery crept or leaned or stretched on a horizontal plane. They all rose right up towards the surface of the ocean. Every filament or ribbon, no matter how thin, stood ramrod straight. Fuckus plants and creepers were growing in stiff perpendicular lines covered by the density of the elements that generated them. After I parted with them at my hands, these otherwise motionless plants would shoot right back up to their original positions. It was the regime of verticality and horniness. The erectileness of these fucking plants was perfectly perpendicular to the horizontal plane. I soon grew accustomed to its bizarre arrangement, likewise to the comparative darkness surrounding us. 
The seafloor of this forest was strewn with sharp chunks of stone that were hard to avoid. Here, the range of underwater flora seemed pretty comprehensive to me, as well as more abundant than I might have been in the Arctic or tropical zones, where such exhibits are less common. But for a few minutes, I kept accidentally confusing the two kingdoms, mistaking zoophytes for water plants, animals for vegetables. And who hasn't made the same blunder? The flora and fauna are so closely associated in the underwater world. I observed that all these exhibits um, from the vegetable kingdom were attached to the seafloor by only the most makeshift methods. I had no roots and didn't care which solid objects secured them. Sand, shells, husks, pebbles. They didn't ask their hosts for sustenance, just a point of purchase. Oh, I'm pouring more tea. There we go. And these plants are entirely self-propagating, and the principle of their existence lies in the water that sustains and nourishes them. In place of leaves, most of them spread a blades of unpredictable shape, which were confined to a narrow gamut of colors consisting only of pink, crimson, green, olive, tan, and brown. There I saw again, but not yet pressed and dried like Nautilus's specimens, some peacock tails spread open like fans to stir up a cooling breeze, scarlet rose tangle, sea tangle stretching out over the young and edible shoots, twisting strings of kelp from the genus Nerocytus that bloomed to a height of 15 meters. Bouquets of mermaid cups whose stems grew wider at the top and a number of other open sea plants, all without flowers. It's an odd anomaly in this bizarre element. As one witty naturalist puts it, the animal kingdom blossoms and the vegetable kingdom doesn't. <laughs> These various types of shrubbery were as big as trees in temperate zones. In the damp shade beneath them, there were clustered actual bushes of moving flowers, hedges of zoophytes, in which, uh, there, in which there grew stony coral stripped with twisting furrows, yellowish sea anemone of the genus Cheterophyllia with translucent tentacles, plus anemone with grafts, grassy tufts, from the genus Zonatharia, and to complete the illusion, minnows flitted from branch to branch like swarms of hummingbirds, while there rose underfoot like co like a covey of sniped yellowfish from the genus Lepisocanthus with bristling jaws and sharp scales, flying gunnards and pinecone fish. So I know Jules Verne is a smart person. I get it. They did their fucking research. I don't need to know every fucking genus and family and species and all whatever the fuck else of all these plants. You could have just said, there's a yellow sea anemone with translucent tentacles. Isn't that neat? I don't need to know that it's from the genus Caraphylia. I don't care. I wanted to be a fucking marine biologist and I still didn't care back then. The fucking scientific names and categories of animals did not nearly interest me as much as trying to keep these fucking animals alive from all the pollution and the environmental impacts. That's what I wanted to do. It's it's my same logic that I use on a lot of different things. I know cancer's bad. Cancer's bad. Cancer sucks. Everybody hates cancer. I don't need to understand the scientific, imp like actual, factual, what the fuck cancer does to the body, right? I don't need to know how it breaks down the cells. I don't need to know how tumors are formed. I don't need to know how it can actually just straight up kill you and come out of nowhere. I don't need to know those things in order to know that the cancer is bad. Okay, I don't need to know that this yellow sea anemone comes from genus Caraphylia to know that it's a fucking sea anemone. These are superfluous details. All right, I'm on board. I get it. It's a yellow sea anemone. I'm with you, Vern. You don't have to extract. Like you don't. It's unnecessary. This is what bogs down writing of all sorts. Looking at you, Nathaniel Hawthorne, 
with all your wasted words? Vern, don't fall into the same trap. Dickens was great because he's fucking brief. It's brevity. That's what's fucking great about Dickens. And Alice in Wonderland was just a colossal fucking waste of time. Like, it's just... You didn't learn anything. Alice didn't grow as a person. She was the exact same person from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. It's just a fucking acid trip that a seven-year-old went through. It's just fucking whoop doo Like, at least with the Disney movie, there's a sense of, like... There's a sense there. There's a there's a there's a, a loose narrative that wasn't in the fucking book. The book was just complete chaos. So Vern, I'm asking, I'm begging you. You're not gonna listen to me because you're dead. But dude, gotta fucking knock it off with this fucking genus shit. It does not improve your book, in my opinion. It makes it a bit more scientific. So you know, there's some people out there being like, oh, I know exactly what type of fish this is. So that's kind of fun in its own way. But you know. With all these scientific names, you know what else comes with them? Looks both ways. A unique, normal fucking name. Right? There's a bunch of types of salmon in this world. I don't need to be able to whip out their scientific names to tell you that there's a king salmon. There's a sockeye salmon. There's a chum salmon. Like, they have other names that differentiate them. Use those names. Those names are fine. God. Anyway. My rant's over. Rant's over. But you know what's going to happen again. It's probably going to happen in this fucking chapter. Near one o'clock, Captain Nemo gave the signal to halt. Speaking for myself, I was glad to oblige, and we stretched out beneath an arbor of winged kelp, whose long, thin tendrils stood up like arrows. See? Winged kelp. I can. I got an image? I got it. I pictured it? You did it. Imagery achieved. You don't have to waste my time with the scientific name of this winged kelp. This short break was a delight. It lacked only the charm of conversation. But it was impossible to speak, impossible to reply. And I simply nudged my big copper headpiece against Count Saul's headpiece. So I had a gleam in the gallant lad's eye, and to communicate his pleasure, he jiggled around inside his carapace in the world's silliest way. That's fantastic. That was great. No scientific names there to drag down the dialogue. Good job. Good job. After four hours of strolling, Jesus, I was quite astonished to not feel any intense hunger. What kept my stomach in such a good mood, I was unable to say. But in exchange, I experienced that irresistible desire for sleep that comes over uh, comes over every diver. True! I know that feeling well. Accordingly, my eyes seemed closed behind their heavy glass windows, and I fell into an uncontrollable doze, which, until then, I had been able to fight off only through the movements of our walking Captain Nemona's muscular companion, who were already stretched out in this clear crystal, setting us a fine naptime example. However long I was sunk in this torpor, I cannot estimate, but when I awoke, it seemed as if the sun was setting over toward the horizon. Captain Nemo was already up, and I had started to stretch my limbs when an unexpected apparition brought me sharply to my feet. A few paces away. Okay. Feet coming up off the ground. A monstrous, meter-high sea spider was staring at me with beady eyes poised to spring at me. What the fuck is a sea spider? Meter-high sea spider. All right. Spider. Oh. Okay. Um. Yeah, look at that. Legs ranging over one millimeter and over seventy centimeters. Okay. So, a meter high sea spider. I mean, I guess it's fucking you know Vern. He can he can pull fucking horrible dumb shit like that. It's a picture here. Giant sea spiders three feet wide. That's a fucking face hugger from Alien. Why are you bullshitting me like that? Oh, God. Sea spiders. It's all over this diver's hands. Oh, I hate it. Oh, I absolutely hate it. Oh, these are terrible. 
Ah, oh, Jesus. Ah, oh, fuck. What have I done? This is a nightmare fuel like the worst I've ever seen. Okay. Anyway, so it's a meter high sea spider, which would be like fucking three and a half feet tall. Anyway. Um, although my diving suit was heavy enough to protect me from the animal's bites, I couldn't help, uh, I couldn't keep back a shudder of horror. Just then, Council woke up together with a Nautilus and sailor. Captain Nemo alerted his commands to this hideous crustacean, which a swing of the rifle butt brought quick, uh, quickly brought down, and I watched the monster's horrible legs writhing in dreadful convulsions. Ugh! This encounter reminded me that other more daunting animals must be lurking in these dark reaches, and my diving suit might not be adequate protection against their attacks. Such thoughts hadn't previously crossed my mind. How could it not? That's the thing about the ocean, man. That's the thing. That's what makes it so fucking terrifying. It's the beautiful Lovecraftian reality of the unknown. You could say, like, oh, the biggest thing's in the blue whale. Like, that's the biggest mammal ever, to, or biggest animal ever to exist, right? It's the blue whale. That's as big as they get. As far as we know. That's the thing. We can't ever be truly sure because we can't observe the entire ocean at the same time. That's the thing. We can be pretty confident, but we can never be sure. And that little bit of doubt is all we all need to be eternally afraid of the ocean. That little nugget, that little sliver of uncertainty. There could be something down there even bigger than the blue whale. There could be. And we will never know for sure. That's where the fear comes in. It's those giant immortal lobsters. It's that fucking kraken. It's that giant squid that's been around since the dawn of the dinosaurs. That's three miles long. Its tentacles are the size of the Empire State Building. We'd never know. You scared yet? You scared? Anyway. I was determined to keep on my guard. Meanwhile, I had assumed the rest period would be the turning point in our stroll, but I was mistaken. And instead of heading back to the Nautilus, Captain Nemo continued his daring excursion. The sea floor kept sinking, and its significantly steeper slope took us to greater depths. It must have been nearly 3 o'clock when we reached a narrow valley gouged between high vertical walls located 150 meters down. Thanks to our perfection, uh, thanks to the perfection of our equipment, we had thus gone 90 meters below the limit that nature had until then set on Manwater's underwater excursions. I say 150 meters, although I had no instruments for estimating the distance. But I knew that the sun's rays, even in the clear seas, could not reach uh, could reach no deeper. So, precisely at this point, the darkness became profound. Not a single object was visible past 10 paces. Consequently, I began to grope my way when suddenly I saw the glow of an intense white light Captain Nemo had just activated his electric device. His companion did likewise. Council and I followed suit. By turning on a switch, I established contact between the induction coil and the glass spiral and the sea lit up uh, by our four lanterns was illuminated to a radius of 25 meters. Captain Nemo continued to plummet into the dark depths of this forest to shrubbery. So, I, I thought about this in the last chapter, but I'm going to say it out loud now. Why didn't they park the Nautilus closer to where they wanted to be? By my math, they've been walking for like fucking 10 hours. Seems like you could have sailed a little closer. Cut some of this shit out. Maybe a little bit, I don't know. Maybe park right outside the fucking forest you wanted to take them to. It's like a fucking submarine. You could have done that. You could have done that. But no, you wanted to walk this entire way. That's fine, whatever. Not my book, not my journey. That's fine. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
articulates mollusks and fish. While we were walking, I thought the light of our room room car devices would automatically attract some inhabitants of these darker strata. But if they did approach us, at least they kept a distance regrettable from a hunter's standpoint. Several times I saw Captain Nemo stop and take aim with his rifle. Then, after sighting down its barrel for a few seconds, he would straighten up and resume his walk. Finally, around four o'clock, this marvelous excursion came to an end. A wall of superb rock stood before us, imposing on its sheer mass a pile of gigantic stone blocks and enormous granite cliffside pitted with dark caves, but not offering a single gradient uh, with which we could climb up. This was the underpinning of Crepso Island. This was land. Captain stopped suddenly. Gesture from him brought us all to halt. However uh, much I wanted to clear this wall, I had to stop. Here ended the domains of Captain Nemo. He had no desire to pass beyond them. Farther on lay a part of the globe he would no longer tread foot, uh, tread underfoot, but he will happily take all the best bits of it and reapply it to his own selfish ends because he's a fucking twat. Oh god, I've, I've, sc I've screwed up. Anyway. Our return journey began. Wow, what a fucking colossal waste of time this was! Captain Nemo resumed the lead of our little band, always heading forward without hesitation. I know that we didn't follow the same path in returning to the Nautilus. This new route, very steep and hence very arduous, quickly took us closer to the surface of the sea. But this return to the upper strata wasn't so sudden that decompression uh, took place too quickly, which could have led to serious organic disorders and given us those internal injuries so fatal to divers. That's true. If they ascended too quickly, they would have exploded and died. With great promptness, the light reappeared and grew stronger. The refraction of the sun already low on the horizon again ringed the edges of various objects with the entire color spectrum. At a depth of 10 meters, we walked in amid a swarm of small fish from every species more numerous than birds in the air and more agile to, but no aquatic game worthy of a gunshot had yet been offered to our eyes. Just then, uh, I saw the captain's weapon spring off his shoulder, track a moving object through the brush. A shot went off. I heard a faint hissing, and the animal dropped a few paces away, literally struck by lightning. It was a magnificent sea otter. You motherfucker! You leave the sea otters alone! They were hunted to near extinction because their fur is the thickest fur in the mammal kingdom. Half a million hairs per square inch. Their fur is so thick it doesn't touch their skin. Killing a sea otter. This motherfucker! Fucker. Oh, all right. Let's listen to this horrible paragraph. There's magnificent sea otter from the genus Anhydra, the only exclusive marine quadruped. Exclusively marine quadruped. The only exclusively marine quadruped. Except it's not. Well, the sea otter? It can go on land. So can the river otter. I've seen them do it in actual life. It's not exclusively marine, unless you're referring to the marine environment as being near water, in which case I would also argue that the polar bear is uh, a marine quadruped. So, I'm not so sure. Not so sure about that, Vern. I think I could argue with you on that. One and a half meters long. This, These fucking measurements. That's a big fucking sea otter. How big do sea otters get uh let's see what do you say one and a half meters long uh males can be between 3.9 and 4.9 feet and females can be be 3.3 and 4.6 meters long so a meter and a half in feet is okay that's not 4.9 yeah okay so it's like the largest of the of the potential sea otters Fine. It's a big fucking sea otter. Most of it's the, the actual body. The sea otter's tail are not that uh, large. They're kind of wide and stubby. Anyway. 
This otter had to be worth a good price. Fuck you. It's coat chestnut brown above and silver below would have made one of those wonderful fur pieces so much in demand in Russian Chinese markets. The finest and luster of its pelt guaranteed that it would go for at least 2,000 francs. I was full of wonderment at this unusual mammal with its circular head adorned by short ears, its round eyes, its white whiskers like those of a cat, its webbed and clawed feet, and its bushy tail. Eh, it's not really bushy. Hunted and trapped by fishermen, this valuable carnivore had become extremely rare and takes refuge chiefly in the northernmost parts of the Pacific where, in all likelihood, its species would soon be facing extinction. Fortunately, it didn't. And they're still alive, but fuck you, Captain Nemo, for killing one of, like, the last fucking otters. Captain Nemo's companion picked up the animal, loaded it on his shoulder, and we took to the trail again. For an hour, planes of sand rolled un unrolled before our steps. Often the seafloor rose within two meters of the surface of the water. Uh, then I could see our images clearly mirrored on the under uh, underside of the waves. But reflected upside down, above us there appeared an identical band that duplicated our every movement and gesture. In short, a perfect likeness of the quartet near which it walked, but with heads down and feet in the air. Another unusual effect. Heavy clouds passed above us, forming and fading swiftly. But after thinking it over, I realized that these so-called clouds were caused simply by the changing densities of the long ground swells, and I even spotted the foaming white caps that their breasts crested were proliferating over the surfaces of the water. Last night, I couldn't help seeing the actual shadows of large birds passing over our heads, swiftly skimming the surface of the ocean. On occasion, I witnessed one of the, the finest gunshots ever to thrill the marrow of a hunter. A large, white, a large bird with a wide wingspan, quite clearly visible, approached and hovered over us. Uh, when it was just a few meters above the waves, Captain Nemo's companion took aim and fired. The animal dropped, electrocuted, and its descent brought it within reach of our adroit hunter, who probably took possession of it. It was an albatross of the finest species, a wonderful specimen of these open sea fowl. Stop killing amazing animals, you colossal fuckwits! This incident did not interrupt our walk. For two hours, we were sometimes led over plains of sand, sometimes over prairies of seaweed that were quite arduous to cross. In all honesty, I was dead tired by the time I spotted a hazy glow half a mile away, cutting through the darkness of the waters. It was the Nautilus's beacon. Within 20 minutes, we would be on board, and there I could breathe easy again because my tank's current air supply seemed to be quite low on oxygen. But I was reckoning without an encounter that slightly delayed our arrival. I was lagging behind some 20 paces when I saw Captain Nemo suddenly come back toward me. With powerful hands, he sent me buckling to the ground while his companion did the same to Count Cell. First, I did not know what to make of the sudden assault, but I was reassured to observe the captain lying motionless beside me. I was stretched out on the seafloor, um, I was stretched out on the seafloor directly beneath some bushes of algae when I raised my head and spied two enormous masses hurtling by, throwing off phosphorescent glimmers. My blood, um, my blood turned cold in my veins. I saw that they were under threat from a fearsome, I saw that we were under threat from a fearsome pair of sharks. They were blue sharks, dreadful man-eaters with enormous tails, dull, glassy stares, phosphorescent matter oozing from holes around their snouts. They were like monstrous fireflies that could thoroughly pulverize a man in their iron jaws. I don't... For all the accuracies that this book has in terms of classifying animals, it does a remarkably poor job at understanding the actual fucking mannerisms of these animals. Sharks are not man-eaters. They will most likely just leave you the fuck alone. Because that's not what they do. They will not specifically hunt you down unless they mistake you for something else. They're not... This, this whole thing about, like, Shark Week and Shark... It's like, it's all, it's all fucking Hollywood bullshit. Don't get me wrong, they're dangerous. But most animals are. An otter will scratch your eyes out if you annoy it enough. Like, they look adorable and cute, but that little fucking vicious monster will just destroy you. Just don't fuck with nature. And nature won't fuck with you. Problem solved. Anyway. But let's listen to them be terrified about sharks. 
Um, I don't know if Cancel was busy with their classification, but as for me, I looked at their silver bellies, their fierce mouths bristling with teeth from the viewpoint of less than scientific, more as a victim than as a professor of natural history. Luckily, these voracious animals have poor eyesight. Eh, that's not true. They went by without noticing us, grazing us with their brownish fins. Miraculously, we escaped a danger greater than encountering a tiger in the deep deep in the jungle. Actually, I'd be more afraid of the tiger, personally, but that's just me. Half an hour later, guided by its electric tail, we reached the Nautilus. Wow, that was exciting. Wow, I met some sharks. The outside door had been left open, and Captain Nemo closed it after we re-entered the first cell. Then he pressed a button. I heard pumps operating within the ship. I felt the water lowering around me, and in a few moments, the cell was completely empty. The inside door opened, and we passed into the wardrobe. There, our diving suits were removed, not without difficulty, and utterly exhausted, faint from our lack of food and rest, I re repaired to my stateroom, full of wonder, and the startling excursion on the bottom of the sea. That was a pretty good chapter, except for all the horrible inaccuracies and the fact that they killed an otter and an albatross like a bunch of fucking monsters. Thank you all very much for listening to this week's episode of the Going Up Cast. I hope you enjoyed the chapters. I hope you enjoyed us talking about the Xbox games. Hope you enjoyed Peacock and um, my camping adventures. Hope you're all staying safe out there. And uh, there'll be more Brazinger chapters throughout the week. And I'll see you all next time on the Going Up Cast. Have a good one, everyone.